you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 10. Uh, we are going to look at verses 5 through 10. Last week, if you were here, we started into a smaller series in, in, inside the bigger series called Disciple. But the series that we're in right now is about embracing the mission that God has called us to. And so last week, if you were here, you survived the fire hose and you were sufficiently drowned with mission. And so we're going to continue on uh, this week and looking to what Jesus says. Is last week, if you're here, Jesus invites us to mission as he talked to his, his apostles or his disciples and called them to tell them what they were going to do in living out the mission that they had seen him demonstrate in his life in front of them. And then this week, Jesus actually shifts and he gives, now that he's got their attention, remember that he says he called them and that word call is that face-to-face encounter where he's challenging them and he's challenging us. Now he says, now he moves on and he gives the specific instructions or logistics of mission. How are you going to do this? How are you going to go about this impossible, amazing, incredible mission of reconciling people back to God through Jesus. How are you and I going to go about that? How are his disciples going to go about that? Jesus begins to explain that today in this passage. And so if you have your Bibles, let me start in verse 5, and then we will read down to verse 10, and then we'll talk about this together. So Matthew says, These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go, rather, to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his, his keep. So I want to stop there and just talk about the, the things that Jesus is sharing. Now, you might read through those and say, I, I, you know, Powerful stuff in there, healing, demons coming out, all these kind of things, you know, very powerful things that Jesus even mentioned last week. And, and so we look at that today, we start to think through, okay, so this is the how part. And I want you just to stop for a moment because I don't want to miss the importance of what Jesus is, trying, is communicating to his disciples and what he's communicating to you and I. When he says that Jesus gives them these instructions, Jesus is telling you and I and telling his disciples, which he did 2,000 years ago, this is how you're going to go about changing the world. This is how you're going to go about doing something that's transformational, doing something that's eternal. It's relatively significant because what he's telling his disciples and what he's telling you and I, this is the process by which lives will be saved. It's really important. And can you imagine after Jesus calls his disciples to himself, they've seen for a, a, quite a long time now, they've seen Jesus demonstrate what the mission looks like. And then he says, by the way, here's the instructions of how you're going to do it. I think they were probably on the edge of their seat, slightly freaked out by what was coming their way, but they were fully engaged because they realized what was at stake. It's kind of like I had this, this momentary experience a few months ago when we, uh, we went through CPR certification. We had to do that for foster care. And I remember it's like, okay, let's look at all the qualifications we have to go through for foster care. And one of those was CPR and first aid. So we actually hosted a thing here at the church, and many of you went to that. How many CPR certified? You know, have you gone through that? And I'm just going to be honest with you. When I walked in that class, I'm thinking, oh, man, I, I really don't want to be here. I don't have to jump through the hoop to get this done so that I can make sure we can move on with the foster care process. And and so I was sitting there, and as, as they kind of gave the introduction and kind of explained this, it like hit me. I realized that in the next few hours, what I was going to be taught was something that actually someday will, may put me in a position where I will have the ability to save someone's life. Because what CPR is, is basically you are working on a dead person. 
Someone who's not breathing, someone who doesn't have a pulse, and they need to have those things in order to survive. So I remember as I sat there, it started to kind of settle in on me. I thought, this is not a waste of time. This is not just checking the box. This is something I really need to listen to and I really need to learn because there may be a moment in time where if I don't know and I didn't listen and I didn't learn, I may be called into a situation where I can't save somebody's life. How much more would these disciples understanding that not only is it just maybe saving a physical life, but it is saving someone in eternity, that Jesus is saying, this is how you're going to learn to do this. This is the instructions I'm giving you, that they were ready for that. And I wanted you to understand that this morning because this is what Jesus is saying as we walk through this mission that he's called us all to. He's giving us what we need to have and what we need to understand to literally change the world. Not just to think about the missionaries that are going to go to the other side of the world to save people, but the mission that God has called us on to live out every day of our lives, whether it's here or there or wherever we find ourselves, that he's called us to. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to walk through this. So let's look at verse 5. As the, Jesus gives instructions for the mission, logistics, the, the details. So the first thing that you and I need to understand in verse 5 is that remember God chose you for this. So Matthew writes, or, uh, he says, these 12, Jesus sent out. Who are these 12? You're here last week. Remember, these 12 were a group of 12 men who really had nothing spe- special about them, didn't have any special qualifications, didn't have any higher education or much education at all, and didn't seem to be significant in any way other than the fact that Jesus decided to choose them. For some of us today, you and I need to hear this. God has chosen you to be in his family And therefore, he's chosen you to be a part of his mission. He chose you, the God of the universe, in his infinite wisdom, knowing you and your flaws and all of us are imperfections. What does he do? He chooses us because he loves us and he wants us to make an impact in the world. Paul says this in Ephesians 1, 4. He says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. That God chose us before we ever had an opportunity to mess up or to do anything great. God chose us. He chose us to be on his team. He chose us to be a part of his family. Therefore, if you're a part of his family, remember we talked about last week, his call is, it's not optional. You are part of his family. You're part of his mission. But just just think about that for a moment. The God of the universe chose you, chose me. Is that insane? Because most of us in this room right now think, no, please don't choose me. I don't don't qualify. I don't don't have what it takes. There's got to be somebody that can do the job better. But God chooses you. Now, for some of us here today, this is actually bad news. Because if you're really honest right now, you're thinking to God, please don't choose me. I really don't want the headache of mission. I like being a part of your family. I like the salvation part. But really, I don't want the hassle of mission. Please don't choose me. Well, sorry, you're already chosen. Remember last week we talked about it's kind of like a draft. But for the rest of us, this is really good news. That the God of the universe thought about me enough that before the creation of all things, he already chose me. He chose me to be a part of his team. He selected me to be a part of changing the world. He's invited me to be a part of that. And that's huge because for some of us, and when you were growing up, you were always the last person picked on the playground. Anybody remember that? In fact, some of us, it's so bad, you were actually never picked. You were just defaulted at the end, right? When everybody picked their teams, there was only one person left and it was you. So no one really picked you. The team that you ended up on got stuck with you because they never picked you. And I think for some of us, we live our life that way, thinking that that we're never the ones that get selected. We're never the ones that are privileged because we don't qualify. God wipes that all away, and he's made a choice for us that was before the foundation, the creation of all things. He already chose us to be a part of his mission. 
That's astounding. Because you and I, we know ourselves, don't we? And we know that we're not perfect. And we know the struggles that we have. And we know that we don't have it all together. We don't have all the skills and all the talent. But God still chose us. That's pretty significant. If God chooses me to be on, my t- on his team, then there must be something good in it that God has for me and for other people. His disciples understood that. You know, you, don't, you and I don't have to stand up before God and say, pick me, pick me. Why? Because he already did. He already made that choice. Second thing going on in verse 5, more instructions that Jesus gives is that you and I need to begin with the familiar. So he goes on in the next part of verse 5. It says, do not go among the Gentiles or enter a town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. So Jesus is talking to a group of Jews and he says to them, to, to not go outside of those that are close and familiar to you. So he says, don't go to the non-Jews, the Gentiles, and don't go to the Samaritans, which, by the way, I'm sure when all his, his disciples heard this, they're like, because we don't like Samaritans, I'm glad we don't have to go there. But as you keep on reading the story, they will have to go there. They will have to go outside. But for, Jesus says, listen, first, your first priority, not your most important, but your first priority is to go to what's familiar. And for you and I, the way that we apply that to us, that's Simi Valley. That's people who live around us. That's our neighbors. That's our coworkers. That's people that we go to school with. That's people that we cross paths with at Starbucks every day or wherever you go. Those are the people that are familiar and close to us, that are right in front of us, that that is the mission field. And that is what's so beautiful about God's mission. God's mission field is not over there. God's mission field is right here. It, we, we, we live in it every single day of our life. And that's why Jesus told his disciples, listen, go to the lost sheep of Israel, those people who live close to you, but they don't know who I am. You and I are surrounded with those people in our lives. And God calls us to go to them first. Now, on a really extremely practical note, this is what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes right now. And I know this is going to be true for at least, all of us in the room and for at least truth, at least three people that we know. I want you to think of three people right now, I want you to see their faces that you know that are either family member, co-worker, neighbor, longtime friend, but you're seeing their faces right now and you know that they do not know Jesus. They have not been reconciled back to God yet. They are living apart from God. They may be really good people, but you know that they have lived their life apart from God and they have yet to discover Jesus. I want you to see their faces because what I'm going to ask you to do, you can do it now or you can do it sometime later today. I want you to write their names down. And I want you to begin to pray for them. I want you to pray for them that God would open the door through your relationship with them to somehow help them to understand the depth of God's love for them and that even though they may be living the typical good old Simi Valley life of having everything that you need, They've missed being with God. They've lived separated and pray for them. Some of you may begin to pray for them and you'll pray for them for a week and God will open a door. Some of you may end up praying for these people for the rest of your life. But pray for them. Pray for them. Why? Because eternity is at stake for them and being with God forever is at stake for them. And God's called us to be on that mission. That's what's familiar. Start there. Sometimes we, you know, we can get really amped up about missions in a good way and we're all ready to go change the world over there when we haven't even thought about the world that we live in in front of us right here. Mission starts here and then it gets there. You can't become a world-class missionary over there if you've never shared your faith or encountered someone who doesn't know God here 
It doesn't change when you get into a different culture. It actually gets worse and harder unless we do it right here in front of us. And so Jesus says the first thing we have to do is look in front of us and go to what's familiar. The third thing going on, look at verse 7. Jesus explains that the instruction for mission is to understand the message. So we're going to host familiar to us, but what is the message? He says, as you go, proclaim this message. What's the message? The kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, for some of us, maybe you've studied a little bit and you understand what Jesus is saying there, but others of us, you'd say, well, no, that's not the message that I've been used to. The kingdom of heaven is near. The message I've heard is, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, therefore I have forgiveness. That's, that's the message. That's preaching the gospel. That's what I've heard. But Jesus is saying something that is much more profound and much broader than what you and I understand. So many times what we do when we come to the understanding of the gospel is that we simplify the gospel, which means good news, so narrowly that people couldn't possibly understand the broadness of all of what's going on when we talk about just the cross and the resurrection. All those, those, those are essential, pivotal things for our salvation. But they come in a much broader context. If you and I don't understand the broader context, most people, when you say, hey, you know what? You need to know Jesus. And the way you need to know that is that Jesus died on the cross for your sins so you could be forgiven. For probably 85% of the people in our culture, they'll say, so what? I don't really need that. doesn't make sense. Why? Because what you and I have to understand is that portion of the gospel is only explained by the full picture of God's kingdom. And let me just broaden this for a moment. The context of Jesus' death and resurrection comes in the God of the universe wanting to be with people. That is God's desire for humanity is to be with us. But you know, I remember the Garden of Eden. We know how Adam and Eve blew it, and we would have blown it too if we were in their circumstances. But what happened to Adam and Eve is that they were created to be with God. And because God gave them the ability to make a choice, they chose to be without him. They chose to do it their own way. They chose to embrace their own agenda. So they were separated from God. And that is what human history has been. It's been us separated from God and the God of the universe constantly reaching into the human experience to draw us back to him. And the ultimate act of that is to send his son Jesus to die on the cross to do what? To pay for the sin that separated us so that no longer are we sinners before God, but we are righteous because Jesus took our sin so that ultimately someday when we leave this world, we will be with God forever. We can't just tell the middle part of the story because it doesn't make sense to somebody who doesn't understand that they're living apart from God. But Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven are synonymous terms in, in the scripture. What is Jesus talking about? So when we have the concept of the kingdom, it's important to understand the kingdom is what Jesus came to establish. And what is the kingdom? The kingdom is the realm or the place where Jesus is the king, where his power, his authority, his forgiveness, his reign is obvious to people and they embrace it. That's where his kingdom is. It's not the kingdoms that you and I think of. He's got to come and he's got, he's already fought the battle and won the war on the cross. We already know that. It's not some physical battle. It's this reality of God's presence in our life. That's why Jesus says the message is the kingdom of heaven. It's come near to you. God is at work around you. God is working in you. God's presence is here. The reality is, is that God is at work in our world right now. It's just that most people in the world haven't figured that out yet. Jesus is Lord, whether someone acknowledges he is or not. They just haven't discovered that yet. 
And that's what it is for the kingdom to come. And why is this important? Because, this, sorry, a little side note here. We have a tendency to be really church-centric. And, and what I mean by that is that we think that if we can just get everyone to church, then we've done the job of mission. The point is not to get people to church. The point is to get people to the king, Jesus. It's amazing because you know what the church is? The church ultimately really is the byproduct of the kingdom. The kingdom is God's reign through Jesus And when people discover that, you know where they end up at? They end up going to church because they start hanging out with the people of the kingdom. That's the church. But so many times we make it all about the church. The kingdom is bigger than the church. In fact, the church fits in the kingdom. And that's, that's why this thing called evangelism or mission or reaching out to people is not about getting people to come to church. It's about getting people to understand who Jesus is. That's why I'm convinced the church is for believers. Why? Because we all begin to understand that. And non-believers will come to church. But the last thing that I want to do and the last thing we want to do is we want to get people to be churched. Anybody heard the term unchurched before? We use that term. It's kind of a scary term. We want to reach the unchurched. Why? Because we want to church them? Oh, please don't church people. That's the worst thing we could do. That's what the Pharisees used to do. Let's make religious people out of them. No, we want them to know Jesus because Jesus changes everything. And it's not about getting people to go to church. It's about introducing them to the king. Who is the priority of every kingdom? Whoever the king is. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. Therefore, he's the priority. That's why the most important, vital way to impact people's lives is not to get them to come to church. It's for you to become their friend and demonstrate God's power in your life and accept them and love them and answer their questions and help them to understand that through your relationship with them, they can draw you back to Jesus, therefore reconciliation back to God. See, evangelism happens where? Sometimes in the church, but most of the times outside the church. Why? Because God is at work in our world. Jesus is at work in your neighborhood. He's at work in your job. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is near. God's presence, his spirit is at work around us. We just have to realize that. We have to see that in people's lives. God is at work on your friends right now. God is at work on those three people you're going to pray for. God is already at work, and that's important to understand. That means everywhere we go, God is at work. We don't bring people to Jesus. We help them discover he's already at work in their lives. Every person I've ever talked to who's come to know Jesus, something happened before they made the commitment to follow Jesus. They already knew God was at work in their life. How many have experienced that? You knew before you made the decision, God was already messing with you, wasn't he? He was already working on you. That's God's kingdom presence in the lives of people. The sooner we realize that, the more we realize this is a mission that's totally possible because God is already at work. Had a profound conversation a number of years ago, when we were in Uganda, we had the privilege in one, one of the, the nights that we were there, we actually stayed in the Archbishop of Uganda's home with him. It was amazing. So we had dinner with him, and he was, he was so kind, and his wife, and, and so we had this conversation. So we were a team of eight people from the U.S., and, and so we were, we were talking to him about, you know, why we came to Uganda, and, and we were explaining to him that we understood that, that we were coming as observers. We had heard what God was doing in Uganda, and we wanted to come and see, and, and the reason we wanted to come and see is to ask, how can we come alongside, how can we come from behind, how can we partner with what God is doing here? So we've just come to, to listen and to see what God is doing. And I remember after we finished kind of with our little kind of presentation of explaining why we were there, he looked at us around the table and he said, thank you. And we're like, why is he saying thank you? Well, thank you that we came, you know, and he said, thank you for coming and listening. He said, thank you for coming and seeing what God is already doing in Uganda. 
Thank you for not coming with arrogance to think that you're bringing Jesus to us. See, because if, if, if we just did a little bit of homework, we would have discovered, and we already had done that, and we knew walking in, that Jesus is alive and well in Uganda. And the church in Uganda is growing faster than the church in the United States. And over the last 20 to 30 years, because of persecution and a corrupt government and civil wars and AIDS, through that persecution and that pain, the church has grown, and now it's estimated that 50% of the nation of Uganda are born-again Christians. Jesus is alive. He's at work. All we did was show up to see that. You know the same thing's true in Simi Valley? It's just that most of the people haven't discovered that yet. Jesus is at work. His kingdom is near. All we have to do is realize that. All we have to do is pray and ask God, open our eyes, open the opportunities. It could happen in your living room. It could happen in a laundromat. It could happen wherever God calls us to be. We have to be ready for it because we need to understand the message that we're bringing about the kingdom of God. Then the other thing about verse 7 is not only... Do we need to understand the message? We need to be able to share the message. So Jesus says, as you go, and he says, proclaim this message. He says, the kingdom of heaven is near. He says, proclaim. Very specific word. Proclamation can come in a lot of ways, but the way that this word refers to it is verbal. It's a proclamation. It's a declaration. It's a statement. It's opening our mouths and actually saying something. And, and, you know, there's the, the, the kind of, I think we have kind of the, the balance that we swing back and forth in the church. Sometimes we're all about the public proclamation of the gospel. We need to preach the gospel. We need to have crusades. We need to tell people about Jesus. And then we react, and I think sometimes out of balance and sometimes out of fear to the other side, which is, no, we just need to demonstrate the gospel. We just need to serve people. We just need to care for them, and somehow they'll discover it. It's both. We care and we serve and we demonstrate the gospel or the message, but we also proclaim it. We speak it. We have to say it because ultimately there's going to have to be a dialogue. There's going to have to be some communication of this proclaiming this message. And what are we proclaiming? We just talked about understanding the message, but what are we proclaiming? Is it just that we are able to memorize the gospel statement, which is Jesus died on the cross, my sins. He rose from the dead so that I could be forgiven. And that's what we say. No, we have to understand the bigger picture. I know I've already touched on this, but this is so important. What are we proclaiming to people? If all you and I do is memorize the kind of the gospel, you know, presentation, or all we do is ask people to pray a prayer, not that, let me, let me underscore this. God uses all kinds of human insanity to bring people to him. And some of us grew up and we prayed the prayer. I prayed the prayer. But sometimes we think, if I could just get him to pray the prayer and say these words, it's like this magic mantra, ta-da! See, when we do that, what we're missing out on is the bigger picture. What we're describing is a transaction. And that is that if I get people to say the right words and jump through the right hoops, then suddenly, ta-da, they're saved. Not realizing that, remember, God is about being with us. That's his purpose. That's why we're created. It's not a transaction, it's a relationship. Now, I know that's cliche and people, oh yeah, it's not religion, it's relationship. But understand, when we proclaim the good news or the kingdom or the gospel to people, what are we proclaiming? We are proclaiming that the God of the universe loves you so much that he doesn't even want to allow your sin to separate you from him because he wants to be with you. He wants to know you. He wants to be face-to-face with you. It is not this transaction, it's this relationship of God's desire for us. 
And I know for me, when, when, when that began to be a part of my understanding of what it meant to really know Jesus, it changed my understanding of my faith. Because up until a certain point, all it was was transactional. And transaction leads to transaction, which leads to transaction. And transaction is this thing called the law. That is, here is the contract. You keep the rules. If you mess up, we'll provide sacrifices. But you're still going to mess up. And it's just going to repeat to you over and over and over again how you can't be in relationship with God because you're not good enough on your own. Therefore, you're separated. But God loves us so much that he sent Jesus to be the ultimate sacrifice, to put, put to rest the sacrificial system once and for all to say, no, you are forgiven. Why? Because all of your sin has been applied to Jesus' sacrifice. Therefore, you are righteous before me. So that what? So that I could just be a good moral person? No. No, there's, there are people in this world that are more moral than Christians. If that was all that Jesus was about, then we would miss the point. Why? Because God wants to be with us. And in order for us to be with him, our sin has to be dealt with. Why? It's a relationship. So when we're proclaiming to somebody, we're not trying to get them to repeat certain phrases. We're not trying to worry, oh, have, I, have I made sure I mentioned every part of what I'm supposed to do? I mean, nothing against, but have I gone through all the four spiritual laws? Have I, you know, have I written out the illustration of you know, God and sin, or sin and the humanity, and the cross is the bridge, and... We've all done those, haven't we? And I know when I first learned that, I'm like, oh, I'm going to mess up and someone's going to go to hell because I couldn't write a cross right, right? But then when I took a step back and thought, the God of the universe wants to be with this person as much as he wants to be with me. How can I help them to understand how much God loves them and how it breaks his heart when they live in this world and ultimately in the next world apart from him? That's the message that we are proclaiming to people. That's what we are saying to people. It is this personal, relational thing that God is trying to communicate to humanity. Then the fifth thing of this instruction for mission is to demonstrate the message. So then Jesus goes on and he says, so you're proclaiming the message, but this is what the message looks like in demonstration form. He says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, and drive out demons. Those are all very easy and attainable things for all of us. We do that every day, don't we? No, we, for honest, most of us haven't seen that happen. Rarely, we just witnessed the testimony of Carolyn Zaffron's miracle of her healing. That was incredible. It's amazing. God works that way. But I know there's even some of us, as you watch that video today, this is what you're thinking. Why not me? Why Carolyn? Why not my friend? Why not my family member? Why not a close friend of mine who died? Why didn't God heal them? And so we have this kind of this, this confusion and this angst when it comes to God's power in our life, but we have to understand the bigger picture. Why would God heal Carolyn? I'll tell you, there's, I don't know exactly why. Because some people ask me, okay, well, why don't we see healing like we did in the New Testament? Why don't we see? I'll be honest with you. I don't know. I know that probably you're thinking, well, you're supposed to know. You're the pastor. Just being honest. But I see some, some similarities and some commonalities in, in the context of God's healing. One of those is, in, is the biggest one. You read through the Gospels and in the book of Acts, you see it. God's power shows up where God's going to bring glory to himself to draw people to him through Jesus. So the miracles were never just a miracle for themselves. They were obviously a means to God's end to bring glory and get God people's attention. That's what happened. Why did God heal Carolyn, I'm convinced one of the reasons is it brings glory to him. When you've got a doctor who stands in your room and he holds up one x-ray that has a mass and another one that doesn't and goes, I don't have an explanation, guess what? The only explanation is there has to be a God. 
that brings glory to God. I know that's one of the reasons. I know the other thing that's true that I've seen a little bit in my travels and, and as I've read and seen what's going on around in the world, one of the areas that I've seen that God seems to show up in power more prominently is places where people are absolutely desperate. It's places where there's high poverty, there's corruption in local government, there's persecution, there's civil war, there's brokenness, all those kinds of things. One thing that's not usually present with God's miraculous power is comfort. Not always, but when we're comfortable, we don't need God. When we're desperate, God's all that we have. If you go to other parts of the, the world right now, you can read through the book of Acts and then you can look at the experience and they look the same. Cambodia, Mozambique. There are revivals happening in those nations that can only be explained by God's miraculous power. People have been risen from the dead. Blind people who could not see can see. People who could not walk are walking. Why? Because God's showing up and the church is exploding. God's power showing up. The only thing I can look at is just say, there's a desperation in those countries that maybe we don't have. Because we have resource. Even though you may hate our government, it's not as corrupt as most. We're not in the middle of a civil war. We haven't experienced tons of persecution. There is some. We don't have all those factors that seem to be true of other places in the world. But you know what's true is that even though we, we, we don't necessarily see every day of our lives a demon come out of somebody or somebody be healed, it doesn't mean that we don't stop. We, we stop asking. We stop contending. We stop praying. God is a father, and you can ask your father anything, but it's his determination of whether he answers the way you and I want him to or not. So we still contend for healing. We pray for it. We believe for it. That's why we saw, I'm so glad that, that, that Carolyn's family said, you know what? I love what Brian said. We're, we're praying for a miracle. We're asking for a miracle. We're not going to mess around and say, God, if you feel like it today, we're going to pray for it. And I'm glad that they did. But you know what's true on the other side? If you and I pray for a miracle and God doesn't do it miraculously, you know what we're still called to do? Care for the sick. Care for the poor care for the broken. We're still called to do that, whether it comes through miraculous healing or it comes through a compassionate heart that's moved by the Spirit of God to care for people. Either way, the message is being demonstrated to people around us. That's what God has called us to be about in our life. That's why we have to demonstrate the message, either through God's power or through our practical care for other people around us. A couple more things. The other instruction that Jesus gives, the sixth thing, is to give what you have received. Jesus says in verse 8, freely you have received, freely give. What is Jesus referring to? He says to his disciples, he says to you and I, you have freely received the gift of God. You have freely received me, is what he's saying. You freely received the grace of God that will be demonstrated through the cross and Jesus' resurrection. You have freely received this. You've freely received the power of God in your life now. Because you weren't charged for it. You didn't earn it. You didn't have to do the checklist and jump through the hoops to get it. Now, don't require the same of other people. Freely give it away. In other words, how, in in a sense, Jesus is saying, how can you receive and not give? You freely received it. Now you freely have to give it away. Now, when we read that, we think, oh, of course. But then we take a step back and look at our lives. Challenge ourselves. How freely am I giving away what God's given to me? 
Not in little compartments or little spurts, but how freely am I every day giving away God's grace that he gives me every day? How freely am I extending mercy to people around me? How freely am I telling people some way, either through my actions or through my words, that there's a God of the universe who loves them and does not want to be separated from them. Therefore, Jesus gave his life for them. How frequently am I sharing what's been given to me with other people? For the majority of us, and I'm included in that, it's not that often. It's not that often. But it should be why we freely received it. Why is that? Part of it is, is, is if we're just honest, it's because we're selfish by nature. We love to receive, don't we? We do, you know, we, we think, oh yeah, I like to give. I like the feeling of giving, but boy, I really like to receive. I, I, I like, and let's just, let's, let's look at this in terms of money. Because money's something that we can, it's tangible. So how many of you ever thought or said, if I won the lottery, we've all said that, come on, Right? If we won the lottery, all of our problems would go away, wouldn't they? If I just had more money. I've had, I can't tell you how many people I've, have talked to me in the last six months. When I win the lottery, man, right size, we're not going to have to worry about raising any more money for right size. I'm not holding my breath, okay? I trust in God more than the state of California and mega millions, okay? But you and I, usually when we start thinking that way, what do we think? Okay, well, hey, I, I give this money to this family member. I pay off this debt. I do all these things. I give to the church. But, you know, if we're really honest, when push comes to shove, who ends up with the most money? We do. We do. We'll be really generous with the millions that we get, but we're still probably going to keep at least 51%. Probably more like 70%. And for some of us, maybe 95%. I don't know. Why is that? Because by nature, we may have great intentions, but deep down inside, what do we want to do? We want to hang on to what we've been given. We don't want to give it away. It's because that's our nature. You know, another part of that, too, is that it's not sometimes just selfishness. It's fear. We're afraid. If we're just honest, we're afraid to give away what we've been freely given. Why? Because we're afraid if we reach out and we risk and we try to live out on God's mission and we talk to people about Jesus and we share things about our lives, our greatest fear is they'll reject us. They'll pigeonhole us, stereotype us. They'll marginalize us. They'll make fun of us. They'll, we'll become an outcast. Because not only they'll reject Jesus, then they'll reject us. And for some of us, the greater, the greater difficulty is what life would be like if we were rejected by people who were close to who we love. So we say nothing. We stay in silence because we're afraid of what they might do. Maybe for some of us, the reason we have difficulty sharing is because if we were honest, maybe we've never fully, fully embraced and experienced the grace of God through Jesus. Maybe we haven't. We've gone to church. We prayed the prayer. Maybe we've been baptized. We've done all the things we're supposed to do. But there's no life in us. There's no passion. There's no overwhelming sense of how great God is because what he's done for us. Therefore, why in the world would I share something that seems honestly dead to me because it's not alive? That's where you don't have to take a step back and say, okay, what is it that I have yet to experience in God? What have I not embraced? What have I limited? What, have I, what has been faulty in my understanding Have we moved beyond just praying the prayer and going to church? Have we fully embraced that my life is not about doing good deeds in order to earn God's favor? My life is about serving God's mission because he's already made me good by Jesus' death on the cross. It's a big difference. We should be driven by what's inside of us. And if not, we take a step back and we go back to Jesus and ask him, why is that not there? See, you and I have been given the antidote for humanity. It is the one thing that will cure every, every ill for all of humanity for all time. Every physical ailment, 
every spiritual ailment, everything that is, is true to the human condition is cured by Jesus' death and resurrection. And we have that. We have that. There's this great imagery at the end of a movie that some of you have probably seen, but it's kind of a, an interesting movie. But I, I think it does totally have this imagery of Christ's sacrifice and what is given to us as the antidote. It's the movie I Am Legend. We're not going to watch it, so you don't have to take your kids out of the sanctuary right now, okay? But at the end of that movie, if you haven't seen it, the whole concept is all of humanity in the effort to cure cancer has been given uh, this, this immunization that causes the majority of, of the world to turn into ravenous animal-like dogs that eat the regular humans that are somehow immune to it. And so you pick up the storyline with Will Smith, who's this scientist who's working on an antidote for this to reverse it. And there's less and less regular humans left and more and more of what they call these dark seekers. And so it's this kind of strange kind of thing as it unfolds. But you get to the end of the movie and, and Will Smith finally does figure out what the antidote is. And the antidote is in his blood. He is immune to this virus that's been injected in everybody. So at the end of the movie, when he's literally going to be attacked by these ravenous animal-like dogs of, or human beings, he takes a vial of his blood, and, and through this journey, he's, he's run into this woman and her son, and there's this little colony of people that are still saved. And so he gives this vial of blood to her, and he says, take this to these people because this is what will save people from this. Now, when she's been given that, she could think to herself, man, I got what I need. My son and I will be fine. I have the antidote in my hand. Do I need to risk my life to go from here to where this colony is? And I might get eaten by one of these things too. If I just stay here and I take the antidote, then I don't have to worry about anybody else. I just worry about myself. It's this picture of you and I. It's interesting that it's all in the blood. You and I have the blood of Jesus that covers our sin, that paid the debt for us, that was the the, the covering or the shield from the wrath of God that paid the price for you and I. We've been given that. Are we hanging on to it? Are we giving it away? Are we giving it so that more can be saved and more lives can be transformed as we give that away? And then finally, the final thing Jesus says, look at verse 9 and 10. He goes on, he says, Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts, no bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Jesus gave us the antithesis of a packing list. You know when you get that thing, you're going to camp or you're going on a retreat, it says what to bring? Jesus gives the other list. Here's what not to bring. And what's not to bring is everything that you and I would normally bring. That's what's on this list. When you read these two verses, you're like, wait a second. Okay, the kingdom, we get that. And you're going to show up in power, we get that. And last week we talked about the Holy Spirit. Okay, we get all that. And then you said, don't take anything with you. Wait a second. That doesn't make sense. He's saying, don't pack anything. Don't go to the ATM and get out cash. Don't take your credit cards with you. Don't get a bag with your shirt and your, your, your jeans for tomorrow and your shoes and your underwear. Don't, take, don't worry about that. Just go because as you go, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to make sure that the benefit you receive, one of the benefits of being on my mission, is that I will take care of your needs. That's crazy. Because I'm sure at one or two or three moments in our life, when you and I think about risking to serve God's mission in our lives, provision becomes an issue. That becomes the limiting factor. I can't do that. I can't give everything away. I can't, I mean, I have to work and I have to make, I have to provide for my family and I have to do all those things. And, and Jesus says, whoa, 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 wait a second. That's why back in Matthew 6, we were in Matthew 6, Jesus said in verse 33, 
He said, seek first what? My kingdom and my righteousness. And that comes after. And then he says, and all those things, what's those things? The things he just talked about in the first part of Matthew 6 was all of what? Clothing, food, shelter, all the things that we worry about. He says, I'll take care of those things. But make my kingdom your priority in your life. I'm not saying this is true for all of us, but there may be some of us here today that you struggle with finances. And the reason you struggle with finances is because your life is not about God's mission. Your life is about your mission. And it's about God fitting into your mission for life, which is to be successful, to be comfortable, to be happy, to have money, to have everything that you're supposed to have as an American. And it's not working, and you're struggling with that, and you can't figure out why God's not blessing you. Because your life has become about you, not about Him. And at some one time or another, that's true of all of us. That's the tension that we live in. But if our life really becomes about His kingdom, His righteousness, His mission, and letting people know how deeply God loves them, that is the driving force. It doesn't matter what we do for a living. That's who we are every single day. If we live that out, God says He will take care of us. Paul repeats it in, in the book of Philippians, a guy who knew about God's mission. That Jesus, through Jesus, our needs will be met. According to what? God's riches in Christ Jesus. Unlimited riches. He's got a bank account that never runs out. He takes care of us. I, I saw this in my life from when I was young growing up. I watched my parents live out a life that made the focal point of life God's kingdom about being about being a missionary, whether it's in the profession of being a missionary or it's in your neighborhood or wherever you are. I watched them live this out constantly. And there was one year, I was about seven or eight years old when I was growing up, and I didn't know this was going on at the time, but I learned later that my dad for a year went without a job, and we always had food, and we always had a roof over our heads, and we always had clothing. We always had everything that we needed. My dad had been on the mission field, been a pastor, and now we had come back to the States, and so he was going back to school to get his doctorate. And so when he entered into the doctoral program, there was a year where he was going to have to write his dissertation. So a number of our friends who were close to our family, I didn't know this at the time, but they came to my parents and they said, we don't want you to work for a year. They told my dad, we want you to focus on your dissertation and get that done so much so that we will invest in your family so that you don't have to work for the next year. I didn't know this. And so I thought that my dad's job was going to school. I thought he was getting paid for that. He would go down to Fuller Seminary and I thought, wow, my dad's getting paid to go to school. This is a pretty cool thing. Maybe I can figure that out someday. But, but that's what I thought. So I thought that was his work and his school was all wrapped into one. And then I remember about halfway through that year, I'll never forget it. It was a Saturday night and we were a part of a small group at the Church on the Way in Van Nuys. And one Saturday night, 15 people showed up at our doorstep and they were all people in our small group. And I'm like, this is not normal small group night. I don't know. We don't normally meet at our house. And they all walked in and they all had food, money, clothing for us. And I'll never forget, they came in. One of them went out and bought a five-gallon bucket of brown rice. I hated brown rice. (laughs) I ate a lot of brown rice over the next six months. That thing lasts for a long time. We had all the things that we needed, and God supplied that. I didn't know it at the time because it was just normal. And as as I got away from that, and my parents told me that, it underscored once again. And, you know, in, in not that there's been seasons, you know, I, I'm as selfish as anybody else, but I know I've watched, and it doesn't mean you have to be a pastor or a professional missionary. We are missionaries. 
But I've watched in my own life, there's never been a season where my needs have not been met. Where God has not, uh, not provided food for my family and clothing and a roof over our head. There's never ha- it's never happened. Has there been lean times? Absolutely. But God has always supplied our needs. If that big one is taken care of, how much easier is it to embrace God's mission? So, for example, we're sending a team to Brazil. We're sending a team to Haiti. Resources needed. Because some people look at this pastor and say, yeah, you shouldn't send out support letters. You know, just send the team down to LAX and see if they can, you know, they can beg for a flight to get to Haiti. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. But you know what's amazing is when you ask, people give. It's amazing who will give to a missions trip. You know, we have people right now who don't even know Jesus who are supporting the Haiti trip. They see something. They don't know necessarily what they see. They see somebody trying to make a difference in someone's life in some other part of the world, so they give to it. God uses that to supply the needs about being on his mission. And that's why I'm convinced. I know we talk about it, but us getting to the goal of right size is way beyond us. But if we trust God, he's going to meet our needs. Because giving towards right size, we talk about it, it's not about a building. It's about getting in position where our focus as a church is mission, not a building. Right now, it is a building. And once we get out of here, it won't have to be a building anymore. It'll be part of a building because that's the, that's the necessary evil of church. I know it is. But if we can minimize that, then we can focus more on mission and see God break through. I'm going to pray in a moment, and the worship team is going to, going to join us again. And we're going to sing a song that if you're here last week, we sang for the first time. It's called, We Can Change the World. And it's a, it's a declaration, it's an anthem that makes this statement that if we really believe in God's power and his mission through our lives, then we can change the world. Not because we're special or because we've done anything wonderful or because we're qualified, but God's power through us can change the world if we really believe that. So in a moment as we sing that, let that be the statement for our lives that we really can see God change the world through us. I mentioned last week, we can fulfill God's mission in 10 years. Not New Hope, but the church globally. There's plenty of Christians, and there's lots that can be done, and we have the power of the Holy Spirit. We can do this. We can do this. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the instructions. Thank you for giving the details and the specifics of what it looks like to live out your mission. And so I ask, Lord, as even last week, we, we know that, Lord, we need the power of your Spirit working in our lives that we know this week too every week we want to live out this mission so this week lord i ask that as we embrace this concept of seeing the world change through us because of your power that we know that the changing of the world begins lord even with the three people that you've already put on our hearts and minds that you've already brought their their faces to our attention that we see them in front of us that lord it starts there i pray that even this week you would begin to open hearts. Lord, those who've maybe even been in the church or been around the church, but they've never really embraced you, that, Lord, for the first time, they would see your kingdom come near to them. You would open their hearts and their minds and that you would fill us with faith, fill us with courage, help us to see your power and your resource so that, Lord, we can make this declaration. In your name, we can change the world. Thank you, Jesus, in your name.